Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. Here at Call Number, we've spoken with librarians from all types of libraries over the years. But one aspect of the profession that we've always been interested in exploring is the world of law libraries. And with Law Day being celebrated at the beginning of the month, on May 1st specifically, we knew it was the perfect opportunity to learn more. Today, on Call Number with American Libraries, we speak with law librarians representing two different avenues of the profession. First, I speak with Emily Florio, Senior Research Services Manager at international law firm Hogan Lovells and President of the American Association of Law Libraries, for a glimpse into the life and work of a law librarian. Next, I speak with Ann Luck, a law librarian at the National Indian Law Library in Boulder, Colorado, about why it's important to have a library dedicated entirely to Native American law, the library's holdings, and more. But first, a word from a sponsor. ALA Job List is the award-winning source for jobs in library science and technology. If you're looking for a new job or an employer who wants to advertise a job opening, Job List has you covered. Job seekers can refine and filter services by position type, employer, location, post resumes, and automate alerts to never miss a posting. Employers can rest easy knowing that ALA reaches the engaged professionals that you want to hire. It also simplifies recruiting by offering flat rate pricing discounted multi-ad packages, and enhanced postings for increased visibility. ALA Job List is where job seekers and employers get results. Visit joblist.ala.org for more information or to begin your search today. Get on the list. As Senior Research Services Manager at international law firm Hogan Lovells and President of the American Association of Law Libraries, Emily Florio has a unique perspective on law librarianship. I spoke with her recently about the profession, the different types of law libraries, and what to consider if you're thinking about becoming a law librarian yourself. Now, for our listeners who, who might not know what a law library contains, or, or, or for that, what a law librarian does specifically, can you just give our listeners um, just a quick brief primer? Sure, happy to. So law libraries and law librarians fall into three main types, law firms uh, like myself, law schools, and then government law libraries, whether it's a state law library, court, county, etc. cetera. Um, for all of us across our library types, while our day-to-day -day roles and interactions may be different, our materials tend to be, you know, obviously, legal-based, both print and electronic resources. And that even varies and goes very specific depending on the type of institution you work for, if your law school has a sort of specialty program, if your law firm is um, an expert in one thing or another. But generally, most of our materials are legal-based. Um, in firms, like the one I work in, we work directly with our lawyers 
And our lawyers, obviously, are supporting both client needs and then general firm needs, which may be marketing and business development purchases, like um, pitching clients for work, um, and then also pro bono work that the firm has undertaken. In law schools, our law librarians work with students and professors, and in some cases, the public, if they're a law school that's open to the public. And then our government law libraries support judges, lawyers, pro se patrons, the public, um, and even wider array um, of patrons or clients. We tend to call everybody clients, whether they are within the firm or otherwise. Um, and then one thing that's important to note as well, even though we are different types of law libraries, uh, we have many similar uh, roles within, whether it's research librarians or they're increasingly called analysts in law firms, technical services librarians, access services, training, competitive intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. Now, something that I've always uh, wondered about, I'm sure some of our listeners as well, is how involved are law librarians or are you involved in legal cases and proceedings, especially in your case working at a law firm? Um, how much of the law do you need to know and how involved or are you involved in these cases at all? Sure. Uh, that's a good question. So I'll talk from my personal experience at a law firm, and I'm on my third law firm, and so the roles have been similar at all three that I've worked. A researcher at a law firm may not come into the law firm with any understanding of court and uh, the legal system generally. I can tell you that I knew nothing when I when I joined my first law firm. Um, and many law firms will train newer librarians and newer law librarians on uh, the legal system or the general legal terminology and materials that they may need to know at a law firm. Um, some law firms or um, other institutions may even put a new law librarian through a legal research institute or some kind of boot camp course. Mm -hmm. um, we have some regional chapters that provide those every year, which are a great way for people to learn the basics. Um, as I mentioned, I knew nothing about the law when I became a law librarian over 15 years ago, and I just had to learn on the job, and I think that's true for many people. Um, for researchers in law firms specifically, you do need to know about legal cases and proceedings and how the court system works and the different types of courts and state courts and county courts and federal courts and appellate courts and and all of that. Um, so yes, <laughs> to answer your question, it's a long-winded way to answer your question. Um, you don't necessarily need to be an expert in the law, right? That's what our lawyers are there for. But you do, but to succeed as a researcher in a law firm and in, men, and in other types of law libraries too, you do need to understand case law. But in many mm -hmm. cases, we might run a search or a preliminary search for a lawyer and then it will be upon the lawyer to dig into the results and find what they're looking for. So it's a really good collaborative experience um, now, you mentioned you had no prior experience, but how did you, how, what led you to become a law librarian? <laughs> um, full disclosure, I am an accidental law librarian. <laughs> uh, 
but I am a proud accidental law librarian. So my uh, my mother is a librarian. Uh, she was my elementary school librarian all growing up. Mm-hmm. And then in retirement worked at a public library in my hometown. So I was, I grew up being familiar with librarians and what, um, that librarians are a role and a job and a career. Um, when I went to Simmons for my master's, I honestly had no idea what I was going to do. I thought that I would probably end up in academia or a public library because that's what I was familiar with. But then when I was finishing school, I was applying for any conceivable job that would have me. Mm. And by complete luck um, and happenstance, ended up in a law firm in Boston. And that was that. Uh, That was the fall of 2005, and I haven't looked back. As I mentioned, I'm on my third law firm. Um, I'm now in Washington, D.C., um, and I can't imagine being anything other than a law librarian in a law firm. So That's I'm great. very lucky that I found something uh, accidentally uh, that that I really love and enjoy. Oh, great. And now you're, you're at uh, Hogan Levels. Um, what What is an average day for you like? as the Senior Research Services Manager? Sure. So uh, Hogan Levels is a top 10 global firm. We do all types of work globally. So as you can imagine, no day is the same. Uh, My role specifically, I manage a team of about 10 researchers who support our lawyers in uh, North and South America. We have about 1,500 lawyers that we support directly across all practice groups and areas, including the most broadly corporate and finance, global regulatory and litigation, arbitration and employment. We are a part of a global research and knowledge team, and we on any given day regularly collaborate with our colleagues around the globe. Uh, Sometimes we have projects that are across many different jurisdictions, so we work with our counterparts in our other offices. We, um, on any given day, have both what we call business as usual research or alerts, so things that we do routinely and regularly. But then every day, at least once a day, we're asked to do new research or work that um, is new to us or maybe that we haven't seen before. As you can imagine, with a firm of over 2,500 lawyers, we do a lot of different things, and it's always growing every day. Hmm. We provide research support to our all of our other business services teams in the firm, as I mentioned earlier, especially marketing and business development um, and increasingly recruiting. We, uh, Hogan Levels as a firm, has a real true commitment to responsible business and pro bono work, which we support as well. Uh, So whatever, essentially whatever the firm needs, we're there for it. Right now, our global research team is in the final stage of rolling out a truly global firm-wide current awareness platform. Uh, So uh, that has us on a weekly basis uh, strategizing how to to work on that um, around the globe. And then sort of more locally, 
Um, myself and members of our team also work on onboarding all new lawyers and partners and business services members in the U.S. Like next week, or depending when this airs, the week of the 24th, um, we will be responsible for onboarding over 65 summer associates who come to us as law school students for the summer. Um, and so we support them during their eight weeks with the firm. And then uh, sort of always in the background of anything that I do or that our team does is really identifying opportunities to raise the profile of our team internally. So spreading awareness of our expertise, uh, the value that our research analysts, we're called research analysts here, um, can bring to our firm, which is something that you'll, um, that's really true for all law librarians as well, um, is always trying to prove what our value is and raise awareness of what we can do, what we can do for our institutions. You have someone who, who might be thinking about getting interested in, in pursuing law librarianship. Do you have, what, what advice do you have for, the, for that person who might be considering this career path? Sure. So first off, hands down, it is a really wonderful opportunity for someone who is interested in a truly fast-paced, complex, and diverse array of duties. Every law firm is different, but you can count on it being fast-paced and interesting and innovative. For someone interested in pursuing it, obviously, as I just said, you do not need to have a JD um, outside of academia most of the time. For instance, I only have my MLS. I don't have a JD. Um, there are, we have a mentor program within AALL. So maybe if someone is a student and they're curious about it, they can join at the student rate to learn about law librarianship and get a mentor who can help them sort of get up to speed and identify opportunities for them. If someone is curious about law librarianship and maybe their master's program doesn't have a specialty, we have various chapters who offer boot camp or research institute opportunities where someone can learn the basics of legal research before they join a firm. Um, I know a few of the things that keep me so passionate about law librarianship are that no day is the same. Um, many law firms have um, knowledge or knowledge management or innovation teams, right, where part of your role is identifying new opportunities and ways to work. Um, for many firms, the status quo isn't an option, right? You know, we're constantly not reinventing ourselves, but uh, identifying new ways that we can support our firms and new things that we can do. And there's also a lot of opportunities. Maybe you, maybe research isn't your thing, but uh, you're more on the technology side or teaching or training side. Really, there's an opportunity for everyone, both in law firms um, and all of our other law, law library types as well. Um, it's a great way to meet a lot of people and have a lot of opportunities to work on different things on any given day.
The American Library Association's 2021 Annual Conference and Exhibition Virtual is coming up fast, June 23rd through June 29th to be exact. Join us for seven days of speakers like Billie Jean King, Trisha Yearwood, Stanley Tucci, and Padma Lakshmi. Programs, meetings, and more, all from the safety and comfort of home. And for those attending, be sure to check out the Daily Scoop. It's American Library's conference e-newsletter with coverage of each day's speakers, sessions, and events. It's really the perfect way to relive your favorite annual moments and prepare for upcoming days of the conference. To register for ALA Annual Virtual and to find out more information, visit 2021.alaannual.org. That's 2021.alaannual.org. We'll see you next month. The National Indian Law Library in Boulder, Colorado, develops and makes accessible a unique and valuable collection of American Indian law resources for the Native American Rights Fund, an organization that provides legal assistance to Indian tribes, organizations, and individuals nationwide. And it's also open to the public. Anne Luck, the law librarian at the National Indian Law Library, joined us recently to talk about the library, its collections, and why it's important to have a library dedicated entirely to Native American law. Now, uh, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the National Indian Law Library, um, actually, I have a two-part question to just start with. Um, first, how does that law, how does the law library, the National Indian Law Library, differ from other law libraries? And I guess broadly, why is it important to have a library dedicated entirely to Native American law? Uh, maybe I'll start with the second part of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> the National Indian Law Library is a project of the Native American Rights Fund. And the Native American Rights Fund, which we call NARF, is a nonprofit legal advocacy organization uh, based out of Boulder, Colorado. It started in 1970s, in the 1970s, um, to work on applying laws and treaties uh, that preserve Native American rights. They saw that they that there was a nationwide uh, need for an organization to advocate for those rights. Uh, so they started doing that in 1970 and very quickly realized that part of practicing this new kind of emerging, emerging federal Indian law uh, was that they needed access to materials um, and they needed other advocates in this field to have access to materials. So they created the National Indian Law Library to co collect legal materials uh, relating to federal Indian law. Uh, and so that's why we're a little different in that we very narrowly focus on materials relating to federal Indian law and then also to tribal law. And it's important to have that just because um, it is such a niche area of law. A lot of people um, kind of end up practicing Indian law um, on accident, I guess. Uh, they're, they're maybe doing employment law or oil and gas law or some kind of environmental law, and that intersects with federal Indian law. Uh, and maybe they don't have a lot of experience in that area, but they can come to the National Indian Law Library and use some of our materials in order to educate themselves and find the information they need to, to make sure that Native rights are considered and uh, upheld in, in all their practice of law. And um, what kind of cases exactly um, does the Native American Rights Fund handle? 
Uh, the Native American Rights Fund focuses on cases that uh, are kind of the most important to the rights of Indians and tribes in the United States. Uh, so those tend to focus on tribal sovereignty, on treaty rights, on natural resource protection, Indian education, and right now we have a very large focus on voting rights, making sure that Native people have the right to vote um, and are able to access uh, the ballot box in, in all of the states. And um, you referenced um, a little just uh, previously uh, the materials that can be found in the library. Can you elaborate a, a, a bit about that? What um, exactly is, can be found in the National Indian Law Library? Sure. Some of our uh, collection highlights, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, include we have a very large collection of tribal self-governance documents. So there are 574 federally recognized tribes. They're all sovereign nations, and they have their own laws that govern their their land and their people. Uh, so it, it, when you're practicing other areas of law, federal law or state law, you can go to legal publishers and find that information pretty easily. You can find codes and constitutions and court opinions. But when we're talking about tribal law, this is 574 governments all functioning differently, all publishing their laws in different ways if they publish them at all. And uh, so, so our library makes an effort to collect those tribal laws or at the very least help people access those tribal laws. So we direct people to, to where those laws are published uh, one way or another. Uh, so our tribal law collection is very big and very unique. Um, it's, it's one of our uh, major projects and something that we're working on constantly. It's, it's ever-evolving and um, ever-changing, and, and we're, we're very proud of it. Um, a second thing that we collect is on, on the federal Indian law side, and that's that we collect legal pleadings from important Indian law cases. And so this was important really in the founding of the library um, back in the day before there were any kind of electronic databases and people had to go to the court to access the court documents. We started collecting those court documents in our library. Um, so we have a lot of, collect of uh, cases from the 1970s through the 1990s in particular um, that are often not really easy to find anywhere else. They're, they haven't been digitized. So we get a lot of requests from from our, our NARF attorneys, but then also from, from practitioners uh, in Indian law who are working on other cases and, and want to see pleadings from these these uh, early Indian law cases that were coming about in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and then we have kind of more of a general uh, Indian law collection. So that, that probably intersects a lot and overlaps with a lot of what um, university libraries that have uh, major Indian law collections have. But... Um, that's still useful to our, our attorneys here to have access to those, uh, you know, books and historical documents and things like that, congressional hearings and reports and all that kind of stuff that um, law librarians know a lot about and know how to find in most cases. Mm -hmm. And who who are who who are your primary patrons? Is the is the library limited to staff, NARF staff, and NARF attorneys, or can the public use the library as well? Yeah, that is one of the things that makes our library very different from a lot of law libraries. Um, it, uh, we are, I guess, first and foremost, our job is to assist and support, excuse me, the, uh, the attorneys of the Native American Rights Fund. Uh, so we help them find uh, all the information they need to, to work on their cases and their projects. But we are also open to the public. So anyone with an Indian law question can contact the library and we'll do our best to get them connected with resources. Uh, so 
We have a lot of different patrons, actually. Um, a lot a lot of our patrons are lawyers who work for uh, law firms or federal or state governments and uh, need some information. We also work with uh, tribal representatives, sometimes tribal council members or uh, people who are working with Indian Child Welfare will often contact us for information. Uh, and then just regular people who have an Indian law question uh, are, are free to contact us and, and we'll do our best to get them connected with the resources they need. Um, you had mentioned uh, the digitization of some of the materials in, in the, in the uh, mm-hmm. library. Um, I'm curious about how users, patrons can access libraries' materials because you have such a wide variety of of <laughs> Types of materials, uh, you know, you have digitized materials, hard copy materials, but also you're dealing with oral traditions and things like that. How, I guess my question is, how how do you collect the materials and how can users access them? Yeah, uh, the best way for our users to access our materials is through our website. Uh, we have a, a humongous website, actually, with thousands and thousands of pages. Um, and lots of information available through our website. So that's the best place to go. And uh, I'll, I'll give a little shout out, I guess. it's Our, our website is www.narf.org slash nil. Um, and that's the best way to, to access our collection. Also, our online catalog. Our online catalog is available through our website, and it is publicly available. Anyone can look at it. Um, and that's the very best way to see if we have something in our print collection um, is through our online catalog. And then anyone can use our, we have a little link on our website called called Research Help. And that's the very best way to reach us. Uh, right now, we're, during the, the pandemic, we're primarily working remotely. So we're not in the office to answer our phone all the time. Uh, so that Research Help link is really the best way to get us. Um, to make sure that we see your question and can and can get back to you. Um, now I, I know that we're, you mentioned we're all working remotely. Now you're you're working remotely, but um, I guess prior to that, or even or even now, what is an average mm-hmm. day like for you as mm-hmm. the head of the National Indian Law Library? I'm very lucky in that I have a lot of variety in my days. I would say there is no such thing as an average day, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of library librarians and library directors would have that would say that same thing about their jobs. That's one of the things we like about being librarians is that there's always something different. Um, But, I mean, an average day might start with a meeting, um, working on a grant project about digitizing tribal law. So might start with a meeting with my grant team to talk about our project. Then I might do some research for uh, one of the attorneys at NARF who has a deadline and needs to site check and make sure they have the right information before they submit their brief to the court. Um, then I might I might work. Right now I'm working with a, a journalist who's writing a book uh, focusing on um, land law and and how land has changed hands over time. So I might work with her for a little bit to help her find the resources that she needs. Uh, and then I might end up my day with some of the more mundane kind of stuff of, you know, uh, sending some invoices or talking to vendors to make sure our digital subscriptions are up to date or anything like that. So it's it's a very wide variety. Um, now, the library, you also produce the Indian Law News Bulletin, and you run the Access to Tribal Law Project. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. our listeners a bit more about those services? Yeah, our Indian Law Bulletins are, that is a current awareness service that we publish approximately once a week. Um, And 
it's a free service that anyone can sign up for. It comes out by email, and it covers topics. So court cases from federal, state, and tribal courts, sometimes U.S. regulations when there's any kind of action happening there, uh, federal laws that are um, going through Congress right now, we, we draw attention to those. Uh, and then a little update on law review articles and news publications. Um, so that's something anyone can sign up for on our website. We have about 8,000 subscribers to that service right now. Um, so it's a really great, again, free service for anyone who wants to keep up to date on Indian law and what's going on. And then our access to tribal law project uh, is our tribal law collection. And, and that's kind of, if you look at our website, you can look at the tribal law gateway and that's kind of the physical manifestation or the digital manifestation of, of the access to tribal law project. The tribal law gateway is an alphabetical list of all of the 574 federally recognized tribes, along with a couple other tribes who are recognized by states or other entities. Um, and it's our way of connecting people with those tribes' laws. Um, because, as, as I said earlier, there is no one place you can go to find tribal laws anywhere. And, and we're doing our best to make that resource happen <laughs> on our website. Um, so, yeah, you can look up any tribe and see where they publish their code or their constitution or their tribal court opinions. Also get contact information for that tribe if you need to reach out to them directly. Uh, we also, a, a little um, side note is we have a little pronunciation guide on our on our tribal law gateway as well. So if you're curious about how to pronounce the tribe's name, you can click on the little sound icon right below their name, and you can get a little sound recording to hear how to say the tribe's name. Oh, interesting. And um, in addition to the, the news bulletin and the, the tribal law project, what can you recommend for some of our listeners who may be public librarians or academic librarians, school librarians, uh, what do you recommend reading or research-wise for anyone who might be interested in learning more about tribal law? Oh, yeah. Um, we do have some some research guides on our website, and our former library director, David Selden, wrote a couple of articles that are, are still very relevant about researching federal Indian law and tribal law. So those are under the research guides tab on our website. I would definitely start with that. Um, also, there are other other um, research guides on our website that are helpful to people who maybe don't have a lot of background but want to get up to speed on Indian law. Uh, I know one that gets the most uh, one one of our research guides that gets the most attention is our prisoner issues guide mm. uh, because uh, Native prisoners have special rights uh, relating to their religious. Um, their religious rights that need to be upheld by prisons, and, and often prisoners need a little help understanding what those rights are and how to advocate for them. Um, another one is our Indian Child Welfare Act, or Indi I think it's just called Indian Child Welfare on the on the website. Um, there are special um, laws that apply when an Indian child is being removed from their home and being placed with adoptive parents or foster parents, uh, and and that Indian Child Welfare Guide is very helpful to a lot of people who kind of find themselves um, dealing with that situation when they haven't had a lot of um, experience in the past.
That wraps another episode of Call Number with American Libraries. Many thanks again to Emily Florio and Ann Luck for speaking with us today. Join us next month as we slide into summer with Susan McGuire from Booklist to discuss this year's best beach reads and much, much more. Do you have feedback regarding one of our segments? Something you're curious about or thoughts on a topic of interest to the library community that you'd like to see us address here on Call Number? Well, we want to hear from you then. New to Call Number, you can reach out to us directly and tell us your thoughts and opinions about our shows and more with your own voice. Call 312-857-6761 and leave us a message that will be featured perhaps on a future episode. That's 312-857-6761. We want to hear from each and every one of you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor at American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. Thank you.